that we don't quite understand currently, maybe those artists are just functioning 50 years ahead of all of us. And maybe it's going to take 50 years for everyone to figure what they were thinking or what was on their mind. I use that in my research in medicine to say, let's not wait 50 years. Let's try to do what the artist does and see if we can invent the future now. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely. This is an initiative we've wanted to do for quite some time, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Marks, based in Toronto, Paul's collection of contemporary art reflects interests in themes involving time, the void, appropriation, replication, multiplicity, and black and white, amongst other themes. And we are sitting in freeze at the art fair, having this conversation on a particularly warm, noisy day in an art fair. Paul has served on the Contemporary Curatorial Committee and Acquisitions Committee at the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Board of Directors for the Art Gallery of York University, the Power Plant, and the Mocha Collections Committee. He's one of the three founders of Art on Valise, an exhibition space in Toronto dedicated to introducing Canadian audiences to new ideas in contemporary visual arts. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me. So this is a conversation about you as a collector. So uh, it seems like an appropriate place to start would be to ask you, what was the first thing you ever bought and why? That's an interesting question. Always uh, asked of collectors, of course. I think it was at a City Hall art fair in Toronto. I was quite young at the time, and it was difficult to view art. It wasn't unlike temperatures that we have right now in the booth, where it was humid and hot, difficult to see, and I liked a particular painting. And the young artist invited me to his studio to see it properly uh, later. It was a beautiful painting. It was abstract color, aesthetically pleasing, retinally appealing, and it was fun to look at. So there was a process to uh, what the artist had done, but it really became... Uh, something visually stimulating and something uh, pleasant, again, to, to be um, in front of. Uh, so that was the first painting, which we still have, and it's... Are you still own it? Yeah, it's in my, uh, my older daughter's uh, bedroom at our country place, but uh, we still have the painting, and it's still quite beautiful. And w- what year was that? That was somewhere 28 years ago. And do you know how large the collection is now? It's getting there. It's just being cataloged, but it's in the hundreds uh, of various uh, objects. And it's difficult to answer that fully because, you know, a small drawing could be counted as one item and a whole installation could be similarly counted as one item. But And is there a particular thread or collecting philosophy that you've pursued over the years? Well, I've sort of, over time, been involved in certain themes that you mentioned in the intro, thank you, that I've, I've found enticing intellectually or academically 
things that you mentioned that were various themes of time, multiplicity, replication, after Duchamp, which has been a big interest of mine, certain pillars of the collection that have made sense of other things more contemporary. For example, Duchamp, as we said, who I've always likened as uh, the person bringing conceptualism over the pond or the ocean, Hans Hoffman bringing color theory similarly to North America, Malevich or Malevich uh, with early academic intellectual threads. So there have been these pillars that have provided some anchor to various aspects of the collection and I've sort of followed those themes over time. There are other times I've allowed myself what I call a left-hand turn card. So I may encounter something in a gallery or at a museum or an art fair, let's say, and I say, well, I'm not sure how that fits, but let me explore that a little bit further. And do you think the collection is, would you describe it as being a sort of post duchamp very intellectually driven collection? Or is it a very retinal collection? How would you characterize it? I think there are various aspects of it that fit both those criteria. I had one photograph of an artist that my, my mother-in-law came in the house and she said, I love this photograph. And she said, finally, something Paul doesn't have to explain to me. Um, <laughs> So the people see different things. There may be some conceptual component behind a piece that's uh, quite appealing, or you may just look at it like I said, an introduction with the piece that I first bought, or you may stand in front of a color abstract type of work that just makes you feel good. Do you come from a family who collected? I wouldn't say that uh, my parents were big collectors per se. There were some works of art at home, etchings and paintings and so forth. My father always had a fantastic library at home, so books were very important, and uh, scientific books, and world atlas, and travel uh, documents, but also uh, many art books that we would go through as children. Back in the day, before Wikipedia, there were Encyclopedia Britannica, I think, was also in the mix. So whenever we traveled, you know, we would go to museums with uh, my parents, and you know, we'd just see things. And I think that's one of the most important things for our discussion today is just trying to go look and see and get educated as much as possible to find out what might appeal to you as someone looking at it at art or but there's a big there's a big shift from being somebody goes to institutions and sees art as a child or as a young person who finds it interesting to making the commitment to become a collector and you know you're spending at that point you're spending your own money and whether it's as a young person and it's a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars you know, as is, as was then, and it's very different now, perhaps, that's a much bigger commitment. Where does that sea change occur for you? What, what uh, got you over that, that line? Well, I, I agree. It, it can be a quantum leap to just looking or being exposed, etc., to actually making a commitment to say this is something perhaps I'd like to live with. But I think at the beginning, one starts small. I think at the beginning, I collected many prints, I started to try to learn as much as I could from people who could be a resource, people at the museum who I got introduced to, other collectors, uh, gallerists, uh, curators, and, and ultimately meeting artists, trying to learn as much as I could from uh, each of these sources. And at the beginning, of course, as I said, I, I collected prints. Um, what I did try to do was find what I thought were the best prints. So. I collected catalog resumes of various artists and I would go through them and put yellow post-its 
on the ones that I thought were good. But if you go back and look at Rembrandt etchings, someone decided years ago which ones were perhaps important. I started with a very classical training at the museum in the Master Print and Drawing Society. I think I was the youngest member by perhaps 20 or 30 years. But the curators were quite fantastic. And they would take me into the vaults at the museum in Toronto at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and they would show me etchings of uh, Rembrandt or Piranesi or Henry Moore, talk to me uh, with regards to uh, connoisseurship in a way, paper conservation, how these objects need to be treated uh, with respect and so forth. So it became a very classical orientation, I would say. Uh, I play guitar, but as a child I started learning how to play classical guitar. Ultimately learned how to play blues and jazz and rock uh, music and so forth. I found over time that a lot of collectors knew about historic material perhaps, but not more contemporary. And conversely, people knew of contemporary art but had no historic uh, basis or context. And I think it's really important to turn the page, to know where things uh, come from. And so I, I tried to get this education not unlike a painting, I would say, where there's layers. So you put a, the primer on the canvas and then ultimately get more and more layers on top and hopefully get more confident in your ability to decide what's appealing to you and for what reasons. And was there a moment when there was a transition from, as you've described it, quite a classical or academic training, in a way, uh, in connoisseurship, to a move to talking to artists or galleries or how did you make that move towards contemporary because you'd collect in a very contemporary way certainly I appreciate that um, I think what happened at the beginning was at one point I was reading an essay on Matisse the leader of the Fovis the wild beasts at the time of the turn of the last century he was painting his wife's face with various colors um, and that was thought quite um, on the edge now we of course think of Matisse as an old, perhaps old master. And I thought at, at that moment there were collectors or museums and curators taking a chance on certain artists in real time. And then I thought, wouldn't it be more exciting to take my own chances, uh, to make my own decisions, to see what might otherwise stand the test of time. I still wanted to try to do that in the context of historic material and I do like even the way I install things at our home, the juxtaposition of historic with more contemporary work. But that there's some dialogue between the master, the student, the protege, the mentor. Uh, I like that dialogue between those two generations. But it's very interesting, you, you talk about collecting, I mean, in one sense you're talking about collecting within your own generation, but you're grounding it or providing a context for it by stepping back. So you may be collecting material which is very intellectually orientated uh, or conceptually orientated, but you've worked back and included Duchamp as a sort of foundation of, of, of the collection so that that material has a context. No, absolutely. It's interesting. My wife, who's not with me at the art fair this time, she has been to, to this one before. If I'm reading a book at night, she'll say to me, dead or alive which I always thought an interesting way to demarcate art. So I said, no, this person's uh, passed away, but their art is still quite resonating and quite impactive. And conversely, this artist is uh, still making art, but it's, it doesn't really seem like it's um, 
it doesn't smell so good right now. So there is this balance between trying to find the artists that had lasting influence and those that will map out the future. And I think that's sort of been a driving force in my collection. If, if you have any regrets in the collection, would those be artists that you bought and you regretted buying, or would there be things that you didn't buy that you regret not having bought? I think on balance, if one had a ledger sheet, it would be the pieces that I didn't buy. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I uh, have I've heard that on many occasions from different people. And you have four children, I think? Actually, five. Five? Oh, at my la- goodness, at last five count. children. <laughs> uh, and is your wife equally involved with the collection as you are? I, I would say uh, definitely no. She does, does she have any veto power? or is she? Uh, uh, she's, I've, I've included her more recently in some things, and she's become excited uh, of a recent painting. And she said, I love, the, I love this. You know, can we hang this up as soon as it gets to Toronto? And that's really been opening. I, I think what, what I've tried to do is include the children at home. So there are pieces of my son when he was four years old that are hanging up still on the wall. He's 11 now, next to Louise Lowler photographs. I've taken a photograph of that installation and sent it to the artist to say this is your collaboration with my four-year-old. But I tried to always have the house such that I didn't want to tell the children don't touch that, don't sit on there, to have them grow up with the art, to enjoy it, to participate. It's, it's always a big question with children. I mean, I have two children and they both work at the gallery. It's, it's always a big question with children. If you include them in the dialogue and they're around this kind of material, are they going to end up liking it or is it going to turn them off? And so I always took the position that I only talked to them about becoming doctors or lawyers. And ultimately they decided they'd rather be involved in the art world. It was more interesting. So that was sort of reverse psychology that worked for me. Do you have any strategies with, with your kids as to how much you involve them or not in the world that you're engaged well, I, in? I think, you know, each child, they always say like a snowflake unique, have their own interests, things that get them intrigued. And I think it's the job of a parent to try to facilitate as much opportunity for each child individually to those things that they might be uh, found uh, interested in for their future. And at some point, you can't uh, do everything, I would say, but hopefully they would get enticed by some of these things. Have you ever not bought something thinking that wouldn't be appropriate to have in the house with the kids? Well, I would, you know, I could give a specific example. There was, there was a piece that I bought by quite a well-known artist years ago, and then we started to have... Dead or alive? Uh, he is still alive, thank God. Are we not going to name him? We're not going to name him, okay. I don't think. Great, respectful, internationally known artist. And it was a multi-paneled photograph, and one of the panels had a gun in it. And I, I didn't feel that, as a Canadian perhaps, that I could hang something with a gun in our house. I did not want that around the children. And I had it packed away in the crate for years, and ultimately I donated it to the museum to find its home. And I've told the artist since that the, the museum did not have any of his work, and that now they do, and it, it's this particular piece which he remembered. And I feel that that's something that's worked out in a positive way. But at the time I, I didn't think that the piece was appropriate given the young children to have um, up in our house. So I've had to make those decisions at times. Uh, do you think that being a collector in Toronto has informed 
or flavoured the conversation for you at all? Is it? Do you feel it's different to collect in Toronto for any particular reason? Is there a geographical flavour to the collection? Not, not necessarily. I think each collector, they would decide themselves, but might want to support local artists in their community or their country, let's say. I think, however, that the world is so small now, digitally, with the internet, with travel. I don't see borders with various artists from different countries, uh, various gender, various sexual orientation, let's say. I don't separate or demarcate artists on that basis. It's more the value that I see in the art and how it impacts me at the time. Now, do I have uh, some type of titration, let's say, or combination of work from Canadian artists and international artists? Yes. Historic artists and more contemporary artists? Yes. So there, there seems to be a balance. I wouldn't call it alchemy, but there's some thread of those types of balances between the various generations and the various um, artists of different, you know, cultural upbringing, let's say. Is there a, I mean, the, the, is the situation in Canada very different for you as a collector if you are thinking about donating something to an institution? Are there benefits to doing that as there are in America or institutionally is it a different situation? I think that there is. Other than the obvious cultural ones. Yeah, I think can, I can't speak uh, for the United States per se or in other countries overseas, but in Canada, there is a very stringent protocol that's required to be met so that if you decide to donate a piece of art, there's a process that you have to go through. Ultimately, it would have to meet what's called cultural property uh, criteria so that it's worthy for the country to have. And so there are groups of works that I've acquired over the years that I have in storage that I purchased those and acquired those specifically to make sure they stay in Canada. That was something that I felt that I could do and share with my family as a commitment to the community. And so that's been a very important part of certain works that I've acquired. So is there an intention that part of the collection or some of the collection will end up in various, in an institution or various different institutions in the fullness of time? A absolutely, and that's already started, I would say. And is that a family conversation? I mean, I've spoken to various, you know, members of the family at times, uh, certainly my wife, and tried to include my older children to let them know this is something that's going to happen. And, you know, there was one piece that we had that they wanted us to donate to the museum. But at the time, it was the children's favorite piece. And I'll just keep it anonymous, but my wife said, well, if it's the children's favorite piece, you can't give it to the museum yet, maybe later. Because maybe... I thought that was the thing that might get them engaged in wanting to participate with the collection or in the art world. And so then the chief curator at the time asked if they could borrow the piece for the museum's reopening after this renovation. And I said, well, I'll have to have a meeting with the children. And we had a family council meeting at the dinner table. And I said, is it okay if we lend this piece to the museum? And my son, who is, I believe, 10 at the time, said, can we go visit it? So I said, sure. So one Sunday, I took all the children to visit the work of art at the museum, which was an outing. And there were a number of other pieces that just happened to be displayed at the time that we had previously donated. And it just provided a tool to let the children know that we're very fortunate, that we have an obligation to the community. And this was a way to show them by example that these are the types of things that we can all do as a family. And so I found that as a instructional educational moment so yeah. yes have you had have you ever had pushback from the kids when he brought something home and installed it and they all 
said, what on earth? Why did you buy that? We don't want to live with that. I'm trying to uh, think of a specific example, but I, I don't remember anything specific. You know, I mean, they might the have reason asked I'm asking them. this question is one of your daughters is sitting here while we're recording this interview. So we've, you know, we've, we've got a truth teller here. So well, you have to be very she'll, honest she'll be my internal audit. <laughs> um, I, I can't remember a specific piece that anyone was so aghast. And I think as a piece would enter the collection or would be installed, let's say, there have been opportunities for uh, the children to ask questions. We had one piece that one of the curators wanted at the museum at the time that was made of hockey tape. And it was all different sized balls of hockey tape. And my son, when he was four, had two of the little ones because I would let them play with it. And he said, Dad, this is a, a waste of tape. So I told the artist, I said, my four-year-old says your piece is a waste of tape. And he said, well, he might be right. You know, so, but again, it allowed the opportunity for the children to participate. And what's interesting in this piece is that the children took some additional hockey tape and made their own smaller versions of the balls to continue in the sequence. And we still have those displayed and they're still installed at home. So they feel like they've been part of the installation. I know the children at one point uh, with a, one artist uh, came to install a work at home and my, my son and two of the children asked if they could help the artist install the work. And so, well, let me ask him. And he said, sure. And I have pictures of the children participating in the installation of the work. And so there's a personal connection they have with those types of works that have entered the collection. Sure. And I think that that's been a really important part for me as well. You know, I've spoken to collectors who resolutely do not want to ever meet an artist that they collect. But I've also spoken to collectors who love knowing the artists and like having the artists as part of the dialogue and almost a daily conversation with the artists about their work in an ongoing uh, arc of uh, learning if you if you like you sound like you fall very much into the latter category well i've had both experiences predominantly meeting an artist and i found that interaction enhancing the understanding of the work sometimes the artist will be quite frank and say I don't want to romanticize that, so if that's what you see in the work, I don't want to tell you uh, yes or no, that's what I was thinking. You try to interpret it as you will. I have great respect for artists, and most times i found that my experience meeting them, uh, either just enjoying their work to that point in time or actually acquiring some, has been a grading enhancing factor for me to further develop my understanding of their, their artistic practice and their upbringing and what maybe their roots were for developing a certain theme within their artistic oeuvre. So most times I would say it's been very positive. Are there a number of artists in the collection that you've collected in depth? Yes, no, that's an excellent question. There, there are certain artists that I've truly enjoyed and I have tried to collect them in depth. So to get examples that I thought were perhaps the best from various phases of their development. And over time, there have been a, a number of artists that I've donated to the museum, a, a complete collection of that artist with a spectrum of works that really would help represent them, I would think. And even at times I've asked the artist, is there something that we're missing that would make that grouping more coherent? And so I've allowed, in a way, the artist to participate, but in a way, the artist is allowing me to participate. A very important thing as a collector, I always feel, is that um, as a collector, I'm just a custodian. And I talked about respect earlier, uh, talking to the curators and conservation people at the museum to know how we were supposed to treat these works and preserve them because I feel that if I'm just a stepping stone for that work to make its way into the museum and the public, 
public's consciousness at some point that that's a big responsibility. I, I take that part pretty seriously, I think. But you, you've talked a lot about the collection in the context of the museum and institutional interest. I mean, there must be artists, works, swathes of work within the collection that perhaps will not be of institutional interest and oh, won't go to the collection. Yeah, absolutely. I was asked one time about, you know, which pieces kind of impact me. And, and there's, there's one example I, I like to use. It, it's, a, it's a matchbox. It's a, it's a Montreal uh, artist. I haven't heard from him recently. Uh, I hope he's doing well, of course. And, and there's a label on this open matchbox that just says, the space in this box is yours for all time, which we have up north at our place. I think this work cost me $25. It perhaps cost me $100 to frame it. It's one of my favorite pieces. That's great. I would never get rid of that piece. <laughs> That's it, it's impactive to me. If there's a whole universe, the space in that box is yours for all time. I mean, I told you, you pass it off to someone else, of course. So I think that various works can have various impact. And, and of course, that might change at different times of your life. Sure. So if you were able to impart advice to a younger self who is embarking upon starting to collect art, retrospectively, what would be the best piece of advice you could possibly give yourself starting out as a collector? Well, it's interesting you say that because my, my daughter Courtney has come to a number of art fairs with me, even back when I think she was 10 years old, came to Basel, Miami, perhaps eight, I've just been corrected. The best... The auditor you know, has the, spoken. The, if, you, if you could only pick one word, perhaps, it's, it's look, 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 and look. And I know people say these things, but it's absolutely true. Whether it's in a book or you get the opportunity to go to a museum or you might see outdoor sculpture, which is more and more common these days, or going to a gallery... The more that one can look and try to inhale, as a sponge, let's say, what appeals to you, I think that's, that's the starting point. Have there been non-museological, institutional people who have been in your life as a collector who've given you incredible advice? Well, I've had many mentors as a medical student, as a surgical resident, as a surgeon. You know, I think that there's some utility, some benefit in diversification in a way. So always keeping an open mind. So something may seem perplexing at, at first, or something may cause some disturbance in your, your soul, but those are the kinds of things that I stop and spend a little extra time on, and try to spend a little extra moment saying, why, why did that impact me so? And sometimes I don't unpack the whole crate, as it were. Or sometimes it takes me a long time. I, I've acquired pieces that only years later that it started to unfold itself, why maybe that fit with other things that I had in the collection. But at the first moment, I didn't really understand that or why the artist was having such an impact on me. I think that allowing oneself all of those conduits to provide information, I think there's a cross-discipline stratification information now that there are things that you can learn from all different uh, people in all different walks of life. You know, the artist to me is a couple of steps ahead of the rest of us, most of us. And I always say that, you know, the curators have a tough job. Perhaps they have to decide which basket to snatch from the river. Galleries have to support an artist. The collector actually, I think, has the easiest job. They can just walk around and kick the tires and decide yes or no. And the person who has the hardest job is the artist because they're putting their neck out all the time. They're putting themselves forward for criticism, for some type of uh, review, let's say. And if you look back... Uh, I'm a surgeon, as I said on intro, but if you look at what they did in medicine 50 years ago, 
most people might say that's pretty archaic. But to think that people won't say that of us 50 years from now is absolutely not true. Of course they're going to say that. If you look at, back at Jackson Pollock, let's say in 1949, he's the greatest living American artist in Life magazine. That looked pretty crazy back then. But now he's an old master, of course. And things that we don't quite understand currently, maybe those artists are just functioning 50 years ahead of all of us. And maybe it's going to take 50 years for everyone to figure what they were thinking or what was on their mind. I use that in my research in medicine to say, let's not wait 50 years. Let's try to do what the artist does and see if we can invent the future now. And so I take great inspiration for what artists do in my own work. And I think that's one of the ways that the artistic world merges with my own professional world. Fascinating. If I asked you what connoisseurship as a collector means to you, how would you characterize your response to that? Well, I think it's trying to find the best of the best. You know, uh, people in the art world talk of the A-plus piece, let's say, or the artist hit the bullseye, or wow, you know, the oh my god factor. Wow factor and wall power. And yeah, like, but if you think, as I said my earlier training in the Master Print and Drawing Society, if you think of the earlier collectors hundreds of years ago, they would have a cabinet with their white gloves and their drawings or etchings, let's say, and they would take them out to study them and they put them away. It was a very private pursuit. It was a very private intellectual pursuit. But I suspect the great collectors of those times would try to find the best Rembrandt etching with the best example that had the plate not worked on so much at that juncture and make sure that it wasn't done posthumously. You know, so there, there's an A and an A-plus piece, and, and maybe one that are less so based on condition and so forth. So I think that's what it means to me to try to find the best pieces. And sometimes it's just that you can just even have the privilege of looking at the best piece, wherever that might be, and just trying to train your eye to know what you feel in your gut, what your gut tells you that, that that's an excellent piece. Is there a difference in that area between needing to own it or you know, would you be happy enough to be able to visit it in an institution? Is it important for you to have it in the collection? That's if an interesting can. question as a collector because there's probably many psychological theses that have been written on collectors. I think there are certain things that you feel that you would want to have the possibility. There's obviously certain things that are in museums and it's impossible. You're never going to be able to collect that. To feel the need to do that constantly, I think you have to refine your strategy over time and to try to say, look, at less is more. I think Mies van der Rohe, the architect, said that. Less is more. And sometimes I think that you don't really know, you know, George Carlin once said, you can't have everything, where would you put it? And I think that becomes a, a bigger problem for a certain threshold that a collector might pass where things are in storage and you can't display everything, things are being lent perhaps. You can't own everything. I mean, it's, it's like Xanadu. It's like my screensaver, I, I sort of decided before I go to some major art fairs, has to be the last scene from Citizen Kane, you know, in the warehouse with all of these crates. You know, are we just collecting crates at some point? Sometimes it seems maybe that's, that's so, not the best strategy. So one final question for you. If you could ransack the warehouses of the world and live with one object from the history of art, could be contemporary, could be in your collection, it might be an institution somewhere that you've always coveted, if you only allowed one work to sustain you aesthetically for the rest of your life, what would it be? 
It's an interesting question. I mean, two points in that. One, I, I asked a, a very senior collection in Europe one time, when you know you're finished collecting. And they told me that when you're using a, a Giacometti as a doorstop, you're getting close <laughs> to the end. So uh, I'm not quite there. If I could have one piece, I think Byler from the Byler Museum is a gallerist as well, wrote an article on what is a collection. And there were uh, collectors, I'm not sure their name, but they, they deaccessioned everything, bought a Rothko painting and built a house around it. And that was a collection, one piece. I think that I actually have a piece that I can't get rid of that's very impactive to me. And I will mention one artist in, in this. But I have an Ankara date painting, a today painting. And it's a painting I see in the morning when I leave early before everyone's up. It's a painting I see at night when the children go to bed and put in the alarm. And it's just one date. People come over and they might say, oh, was that the day your house was built? And I have to, I'm then given the opportunity to explain them the nature of that artist's practice where he would spend 24 hours creating this one painting. There was a whole sequence of events and layers that had to be put on. If you didn't complete the painting at the end of 24 hours, it had to be destroyed. But it's the first thing I see in the morning when I leave early, when perhaps the... And no one's up in the house and I have to go early for surgery. And at night, when we put the kids to bed and put the alarm on, it's perhaps the last thing I see upstairs in the hallway. And it just reminds me the Carpe Diem sees the day. You have 24 hours. What are you going to do that's good for your family, your, your partner, your community, yourself perhaps? You have 24 hours. Don't waste that time. Because at some point, the companion piece of that is the telegram from Ankara that says, I'm still alive, which we you know, had lent to the Guggenheim show. And again, a very impactful thing because at some point that stops. And what are you gonna do on these days that you're privileged to be here in the world to make a difference uh, perhaps? And I think for me, the art is that one enhancing factor, that one variable that's not always quantifiable that allows you to participate in the world wherever you are and makes your life just a little bit sweeter. Paul Marks, perfect place to finish. Thank you so much for being part of Collect Wisely and sharing your thoughts and wise advice as to how your collection has been formed and shaped and informed. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you about it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers. Cheers.